So I think that what preaching is intended to do is to break through that sort of captivity in the way that you see Jesus, for instance, in Mark chapter one, he's coming into the synagogue and in Capernaum. And what is he doing? He's teaching as one who has authority and not as one of the scribes. He's also speaking to the evil spirits and they obey him. And so the question is, what kind of authority is that? Well, I think that is exactly what happens uh, every time that the word is, is rightly preached. Hi, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 169. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and I can't wait for you to listen in on this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Russell Moore. You know, for the past uh, several years, Dr. Moore has been the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. But just recently, on the 19th of May, 2021, uh, it was announced that he is stepping down from that position and he is taking a full-time job at Christianity Today as a full-time public theologian and uh, leading the Public Theology Project. So I'm excited uh, about what's going to come forth um, out of uh, this exciting new uh, transition in his life and ministry. Um, so this is a conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago. So we didn't speak about any upcoming changes to his job or to vocation. We like on most episodes here at the podcast, we talked about preaching. And so in this conversation, you're going to hear about uh, Dr. Moore's first sermon that he preached when he was only 12 years old and the vomit beforehand and the vomit afterwards, uh, the nerves of that poor preteen boy as he ascended into the pulpit for the very first time. Uh, we're also going to hear about spiritual warfare in the pulpit, or maybe a better way of putting it is the way that God himself uses the pulpit as an offensive weapon in his hand against the powers of darkness, and also ways that we can use or misuse commentaries and insights from other writers and communicators in our own pulpit and preaching communication. Um, before the interview starts, I just want to let you know that um, Expositors Collective, we're active on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, whichever social media that you use, um, you should uh, give us a follow. We have um, quotes about preaching that come out um, nearly every day. Uh, we are able to let you know about upcoming podcast episodes that come out every Tuesday and sometimes on Thursday. And also, that's where you're going to find out about our upcoming training events. We have one coming up in Colorado in September, and you can find out more information on our website, expositorscollective.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All right, I'll, I'm going to chime in again at the end, but uh, thank you so much to Dr. Moore for this incredible interview, and I know that you, the listener, are going to enjoy it. All right, God bless. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, very excited. Um, so, Russell, I've been listening to you preach for like a couple decades. How does it, how does it feel to hear that? It's kind of weird. Yeah. Does it, <laughs> time goes by very quickly. <laughs> it, feel, it feels weird to say it. Uh, it yeah. also must be, it must be weird, weird to hear it. Um, but yeah, I, I came across um, 
I think, uh, yeah, I came across like a, a Sunday school series that you did in the book of Exodus. Yes. I don't know if that was one of the first ones that I've heard, but that was the first like series that I committed to to listening through and uh, I really enjoyed it and glad to to follow along and be able to, to speak to you now. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege. I, I, I want to ask you about your first sermon that you ever preached, but before that, here's, here's ambush journalism. I want to okay. ask you, what is the best office episode ever? Uh, it it has to be dinner party. Yes, uh, the, the the cringe level of dinner party is is it's hard to uh, uh, Scott's tots uh, is close in level of cringe. Yes, yes, but yes. dinner party just it outdoes it. I think. Yes, yes, I I I, I knew I, I was hoping that you would that you would say that. But, yeah, it's but, it's so... but I would I would say though, uh, if I have to just choose an episode to watch, it's probably going to be Fun Run, that that two part okay. uh, Meredith uh Rabies episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that one's kind of heartwarming. There's heartwarming parts in, yes, in that is. episode. Yes. Um dinner yeah. party, not at all. Not at all. No, um, it's dark. Yeah. yeah, maybe that one or tied with and they're kind of a somewhat of a two-part, the deposition, which takes yes. place like like immediate, like and so to realize that like the deposition takes place and Michael and Jan have that terrible interaction, and the next time you see them is the dinner party. So yes. it kind of added level of cringe. Yes, and it's it's uh pent up uh submerged <laughs> hostility <laughs> and the narcissism that's peeping through at the deposition at the deposition from Jan just yeah breaks forth in full force at the house. So. Oh, I'll tell you, this is the content people want to hear on the Expositors <laughs> Collective podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, okay, cool. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, maybe could you also let us into your life? And uh, we often ask people about their very first sermon that they ever preached. It kind of is a way that it kind of gets to know, like we're able to, to enter into your story a little bit. So uh, when did you first uh, teach or preach the Bible? I was 12, Wow. And I uh, went to my pastor to say, I think I'm, I might be wrestling with a call to ministry. And his immediate response was to say, okay, uh, well, I'm going to schedule you to preach two weeks from Sunday night. Yeah. Uh, and I said, no, I don't mean I'm called to preach now. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I want to I uh, help you do this and, and uh, let you experience it. And so he did. And what he did was to try to help me to learn how to do it as we as we move toward that night. Okay. And, okay. Uh, so it was awful. I'm oh. glad there's not a recording of it. It was eight minutes long. The no entire way. canon of scripture. <laughs> yeah, I went. There was a little uh, bathroom right next to the baptistry, and I yep. went in and threw up yeah. right before I went out to preach. I was so nervous, and then went and threw up right after. Uh, okay. uh, and you know, that, 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 that was the, the first time. And then, um, that, that was, that was sort of on its own. And then later when I started preaching regularly, mm. uh, I was in my early twenties. Okay. So, so, so that first experience, it didn't like dissuade you from no. the, okay. Okay. It sounds no, like the sort of thing, like, like your dad makes you smoke a whole pack of cigarettes to teach you a lesson. Yeah, no, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my congregation, my home church handled it so well. 
because not only did the pastor sort of take me through uh, every point of the way on the way there, but the congregation, um, they were, I mean, the everybody was there yeah. and then everybody was uh, encouraging in the right way. Uh, so no, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't do that at all. And as a matter of fact, what I came away from that, uh, I came away from that with a great deal of fear. I spent a lot of my grappling with, uh, with a call to ministry worried about being able to do public speaking. Mm-hmm. I look okay. back on it. I think, I don't know why I was so worried about that because I was, I was doing like, um, extemporaneous speaking competitions in middle school and whatever. But for some reason, that was a big issue for me, but they were very encouraging and that, that helped. Yeah. So it was a, it was eight minutes. Was, was that the whole of the service or was there a a, a real sermon before or after? I shouldn't say real. No offense. No offense. What they they did uh, was they sort of, um, you know, I know in a lot of congregations, this is cheesy and counterproductive. Uh, it was not in ours uh, to have sort of a youth uh, Sunday night service because in a lot of congregations that turns out to be sort of a aren't they cute pat them mm. on the head sort of a thing. Yeah, that was not at all the vibe. Yeah. Uh, it, instead, the vibe was we really are expecting you, uh, twelve and thirteen year old uh, kids here to be leading us very soon. And we want to, to get you ready to do that. That was the whole vibe. So there was no, uh, there was no sort of pageantry or cuteness about it. And, and so in that way, I think it was encouraging to everybody who participated. So you had all sort of middle school, high schoolers in the choir, taking up the offering, doing the, uh, uh, the offertory prayer and the pastoral prayer and the benediction, all of that was taking place that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a great way to to look at it. My, I guess a follow up question is is um, is like, do you think preteens should preach? Like, like, would you would you have that today? Um. Well, the no, not typically. Yeah. But in that context, I mean, it was a very cohesive sort of uh, community, and so it was. It very much was a church as family uh, sort of reality within that that congregation. It wasn't it wasn't just metaphor by by any means. So for the pastor to say, I think what the pastor was trying to do was not so much to encourage me mm-hmm. as he was to say to the rest of the congregation, our congregation is going to outlive us and we wow. need to start thinking about that now. So yeah. in that sense, I think it was, I think the way he handled it was, was great. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. With, with Expositors Collective, we're, we're interested in like training, equipping, encouraging like new and young Bible teachers. And, and I love that language of like, yeah, this is, this is going to outlive us. Like the church is not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, right. It needs to be investing into that future generation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but, but I got to say the 12 year old, it makes me feel a little bit nervous, but that's, that's like, you know, leadership and the future of the church involves a bit of risk from time to time. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is I had such a safety net underneath me. Um, not only did I just personally uh, in, in terms of that congregation and that pastor, but also the congregation did mm-hmm. because 
if if I had um, if I had done something awful, I mean, I did at the level of communication, but I didn't yeah. at the level of sort of, you know, if I, if I had uh, gotten up and announced that Artemis uh, is the uh, mediator <laughs> between God and man, uh, yeah. the, the pastor would have gotten up and walked everybody back down from that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that I had the safety net there. Okay. Well, could you briefly maybe talk us about that that twenty when you were twenty and you kind of preached maybe a, again or your first time as a as an adult? Yeah, I I had gone through a spiritual crisis as about a fifteen year old, uh, seeing uh, some really ugly realities about Bible Belt Christianity that left me disillusioned mm. and really threw me into a crisis, and I had to work through that. Uh, process for, for several years. And in the process, I turned away from a call to ministry and was pursuing a, a life in, in government. And so I was really early on, um, you know, all through my college years, I was serving as a communications director for a United States congressman and running political campaigns and doing all that sort of thing. So that's what I had been doing until uh, I was in Washington uh, one summer uh, working, and the Library of Congress would sometimes in the summer allow congressional staffers to come in and, and pick through discard books. Um, and so I did. I got a whole bunch of books, but one of them was a, a little uh, Free Will Baptist Pastor's Guide to uh, Weddings and Funerals. Okay. Wow. And I just said, why did I want that? Uh, and so that question sort of led me back to that initial calling. And so when that happened, I talked to my congressman, I talked to my pastor, I talked to others, and, and everybody was encouraging. So that first semester of seminary um, is when the pastor of my home congregation, who was new, I didn't know him very well mm -hmm. at the time, but he asked me to fill in for, for him in April. Uh, of that year. And it was a really uh, terrifying sort of prospect. I mean, even though, you know, in my sort of political life, I'd spoken all over the place at, sure. uh, at things, but this was different. And so I spent a lot of time uh, working up and getting ready uh, for that. And it, it also wasn't great, but the, it was the same congregation and yeah. they were just as encouraging and, and helpful along as, as ever. I think if I'd been in a different place where I might've come away with that same sense of terror, it might have, you know, things might've gone in a different direction for me. Yeah. I love that they've seen you preach at 12 and then eight years later, they, they saw you preach again. Yeah. Now, now here's the question. What was different? <laughs> a lot, I'm sure a lot was different, but like, how, how have you grown this it's kind of a silly question, but between 12 years old and, and 20 years old. Well, at, at 12, what I did was I didn't know what to do. Uh, and so my pastor had given me this book of sort of uh, sermon starters, you know, uh, those sorts of uh, horrible things uh, that are, are, I'm sure they're still out there. I don't know. Uh, but it sort of gives you an outline uh, of, of what to do. And so okay. I followed that. Um, and by the time I was uh, in seminary, I wasn't doing that. Yeah. What, what I was doing, uh, I preached from Ecclesiastes 12. Okay. Um, and so I've been working on it, working on it. It, it had taken me forever to work on this sermon. 
and I was in my Hebrew class uh, and we had time for prayer. And I said, hey, everybody, pray for me. I'm, I'm preaching at my home church this weekend. Well, the prof, who was a very intimidating uh, figure, uh, said, what are you preaching? And I said, Ecclesiastes 12. Well, I wasn't thinking about the fact that Ecclesiastes was his area of research. He did okay. his dissertation yeah. <laughs> and he'd written on Ecclesiastes. And he said, well, why don't you bring your sermon outline by and let me look at it Yeah. Uh, on Friday. Well, this Friday, I was going to preach on Sunday night. I brought it to him and he looked at it and said, well, the good news is there's still time to redo this. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, there's not time to redo this. I've got, uh, uh, so anyway, I, I thought about that for years. And then maybe um, I think about uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, this prof ended up being a, a pastor uh, later. He left academia, went, went into the pastorate, and he had me preach for him. And he said, what are you, what are you going to preach? And I said, I don't know, but I can guarantee you it's not Ecclesiastes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that, that what, a, yeah, on the one hand, it, your heart must have sank to hear, well, it's not too late to, to do it all over again. Right. Um, but is that sort of a gift, you know, that you're able to, to, to get that kind of feedback beforehand? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was probably too late in the game for me to, um, oh, I guess it, my real was, question is, did you change it at all? Or did no, you just, I didn't. Oh, I didn't oh have, really? Oh, I, I didn't oh. have time. I wouldn't have known how <laughs> to go back because he didn't say change this and change that. It was just, uh, you know, you can go back and do it. And frankly, I mean, some of the things at the time that he was uh, wanting me to do in terms of ancient Near Eastern backgrounds and Hebrew syntax and so forth would not have been uh, appropriate in my home congregation okay. at all. And okay. nor would it have been really the way that I, uh, I mean, I, I preach much differently than I did then, but I, I never would have been preaching the way he would have probably expected at the time from Ecclesiastes. Okay. I see. Okay. So man, so, so you're told this is not good enough but yeah. just go do it anyway. <laughs> just go do it anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, sounds like a battle, um, which which I want to transition. Um, so I I would love to hear any thoughts that you have on like the act of preaching as as an act of of spiritual warfare. I um, I, I loved your book, Tempted and Tried. The the connections that are evident throughout of the the spiritual battle that's around us. I'm about halfway through the storm tossed family and, you know, turns out every aspect of family is also spiritual warfare. Uh, what do you think about preaching? Is this, is this the sole outpost that's not spiritual warfare? No, I think it's, uh, I think if you look at, for instance, second Corinthians four, uh, what Paul talks about is the open proclamation of the truth uh, ends up with what it ends up with a voice that is being heard uh, by the hearer, a voice that's coming from God and a voice that has creative power. And it also is a light. So as God said, let light shine in darkness. So he has, he has shown uh, the light of the gospel uh, and the light from the face of Jesus directly into our hearts. And what happens is a breaking of the power of the God of this age. So I think that the way that uh, the principalities and powers work is in two directions. One is in deception, 
which is what we typically think of when we think of um, uh, spiritual warfare, which is mm. you shall not surely die. You, yeah. you don't really yeah. need uh, the gospel. But the other is then accusation. So you you are guilty and there is no way to resolve your guilt. You are shameful and there is no way to resolve your shame. Yeah. So I think that what preaching is intended to do is to break through that sort of captivity in the way that you see Jesus, for instance, in Mark chapter one, he's coming into the synagogue and in Capernaum. And what is he doing? He's teaching as one who has authority and not as one of the scribes. He's also speaking to the evil spirits and they obey him. And so the question is, what kind of authority is that? Well, I think that is exactly what happens uh, every time that the word is is rightly preached, both of those aspects. So I think one of the key aspects of preaching and Bible teaching that you see in Scripture is this way of going around the defenses uh, often. So if you think of C.S. Lewis uh, used to talk about why he wrote uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia the way he did, and he said there's often a kind of familiarity uh, with uh, biblical themes that cause people to sort of defend themselves against it. Mm-hmm. And he said, but if I thought if I could go around those watchful dragons, uh, then I could could get to them. Well, I think that's exactly what is is often happening in in preaching, which is why you have, for instance, uh, Nathaniel comes to David right. and doesn't start with, here are the Ten Commandments, and here's how you've broken them. He, he comes in, he first involves, uh, he involves the king through the level of the imagination of what the uh, moral and emotional evaluation would be of a man who stole uh, a ewe lamb from yeah. his, his poor neighbor yeah. and then turns it uh, around. I think much of Jesus's preaching is like that. Uh, much of the apostles preaching is like that. And so that's that's incredible. Is there, however, like to, to push on that, is there like a uniquely spiritual aspect of like avoiding people's preconceived notions and communicating in a in a surprising way? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do we need the Holy Spirit to do that, or is that just good communication skills or or marketing? Uh, well, you have to have you have to have the Holy Spirit uh, in order for people to hear the actual uh, voice of of Christ. But what you're doing in terms of communication is making sure that you are actually heard in the way that you intend to be heard. And the way often you intend to be heard is by going around the filters that people have already already put up. Mm -hmm. So you you have to always be asking, uh, what are people... Um, what are people hearing as just, yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you go to, for instance, if you go to a, uh, a funeral, you're going to hear uh, a lot of familiar funereal cliches that people are going to use every time that people don't even listen to. Uh, it's just, that's expected. And I hear that and I, and I go through. Not a lot you can do about that. Yeah. But a lot of that comes in with preaching. And so what you're going to have to do is to say, what, what are people expecting to hear? 
And so what do they hear? So Neil Postman, uh, the uh, uh, philosopher of media, used to talk about the fact that Shakespeare was actually kind of wrong when he said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Because if you name a rose a stinkweed, you're, you're going to cause a perception that's yeah. going to take place that's going to actually alter what the experience is like. Yeah. And so you have to ask what what are the ways that people have categorized uh, things and and what are any kind of communication is going to have shortcuts. Uh, you, you can't explain everything. But what you have to ask is what are the right shortcuts and what are what are not the right shortcut. So if I'm, uh, you know, I'm going and I'm speaking to my church, I'm not going to stand up and say today when I'm talking about Jesus, what you have to understand is there was a, a man uh, in first century uh, Roman occupied Palestine. And it, here, here's the thing. There was a little town called Nazareth. I'm not going to do that that way. I'm going to say Jesus and, and, and expect that they understand who this is yeah. as I go on and talk about it. But you're going to have to ask, what are the shortcuts people think they know and they don't? And, and a lot of that has to do with just doing your due diligence in knowing your people, if, mm -hmm. it, if you're talking to the people that you're with all the time, mm -hmm. or doing whatever you can to try to figure out what my audience is like uh, somewhere else. Right. So, for instance, um, I was spending... I. I was a preaching pastor at a congregation and every uh, I had been preaching a lot about um, I, I would talk about I was preaching through first Corinthians. So there's a lot about sexual immorality uh, in first Corinthians. So I've been talking about about that. And then I had been talking about temptation and so forth. A man came up to me after the service and he said, you know, um, I really am having some struggles with temptation. Uh, and he had he had been involved in substance abuse and all sorts of things. He said, because I'm tempted sometimes to go back to heroin. And I said, well, are you in danger of taking heroin right now? And he said, no, uh, but I'm just, I find myself thinking about it a lot. I said, okay. I said, well, let's meet. We set up a time to meet. And I said, but before we do, can you tell me when, are there times you notice when you're more tempted toward heroin? He said, usually, I think it's when, you know, I meet some woman and sleep with her and she starts, uh, you know, maybe she's into heroin and she talks about it. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I said, uh, okay, we're meeting, to, uh, you know, Tuesday, I think was the next time I could meet. I said, but in the meantime, uh, you're going to stop sleeping with these women. Yeah. And then I'm going to address it when we get together. <laughs> so when we did, he yeah. said, I did what you said. Uh, but these women don't like it. And I said, oh, well, I don't really care if they like it or not. He said, well, he said, you know, when I say you have to leave now because my pastor says you do, they, they really feel kind of disrespected. And I said, wait, when I say not to be sleeping with these women, that's metaphorical language. I'm not talking about whether they stay the night. Yeah. I'm talking about the sexual immorality. And he said, oh, there's no sexual immorality at all. They're all single, as am I. Yeah. And that's when I realized, okay, I have someone new to the Christian faith 
when he hears sexual immorality, what he's hearing is marital infidelity, yeah, adultery. Cheating. Yeah. So that says to me, okay, there, I'm taking a shortcut here that isn't working. So <laughs> I'm going to have to come in and rework that <laughs> and, and explain some things that I might not have had to explain in some other, uh, some other context. I think wow. you're, you're constantly having to do that. Wow. Yeah. And, and with maybe a bit of a hyper literal uh, understanding. And uh, so good job having yeah, a, a but longer. If you, if, you, if you think about it though, uh, in, in a uh, contemporary uh, American or Western, Western European uh, context, his, uh, his viewpoint makes perfect sense. Sure. Because if what matters is uh, only consent and uh, hurting someone else's uh, feelings yeah. uh, or, or, or violating or lying and, and saying something that's untrue, then, then that makes sense. You wouldn't think of anything else as immorality. Yeah. And if, if I just come in and say, uh, immorality, and I'm assuming that he's got the whole biblical and ethical framework, then I'm not actually speaking to him. And that's uh, that's actually spiritual warfare. Why? Because the conscience wants to protect itself mm-hmm. uh, in, in every way from actually encountering uh, Christ. And so what you have to do is to have a direct uh, confrontation with the conscience, both in terms of alarming it and also reassuring it uh, with the gospel, but you have to get to that uh, that that face to face confrontation with that conscience. Yeah, and and doesn't Romans speak about like that that our conscience is either like they excuse us or we have you know in in Ireland we call him a, a solicitor or you know it's a lawyer like we have this defense attorney that just says well it's okay for you it's okay and the the maybe the the spiritual warfare of of the preacher or or the work of the Holy Spirit is to just kind of disarm that and just say yes. like you you think that it's okay but let me just carefully, hopefully lovingly, um, but truthfully say the excuses that you're making for yourself, they're, they're not, they won't stand. And so right. here's what God is calling you to do. And, and you know it mm. at, at a deeper level than you see, you, you actually know it. Yeah. There's so, that so presuppositional apologetics that, coming in. What's, what's that? <clears throat> there's that presuppositional apologetics coming in, uh, which, which says that like everyone does know the truth of God and is suppressing the truth in yeah. unrighteousness. Yeah. Yeah, Greg Bonson and, and others. That's maybe a different, different episode of a different podcast to talk about instead. Um, but yeah, very briefly talking about yeah, we have we have shorthand. Like we say things and we know what it means. Um, you know, just at the beginning of this podcast, you know, the opening banter had to do with like you know, you said dinner party. I knew exactly what you meant. Right. Scott's tots, you know, there's people that have listened to that and they didn't understand any of those sure. syllables. What on earth does that mean? And why is it so funny? Just the mention of the word deposition causes laughter. But but we have this agreed upon way of looking at the world or thinking about Michael Scott or whatever. And, and so there's these code words that mean a lot to us realizing. Yeah, and, that- and in that case though, it's not as difficult because if someone knows I don't know the shortcut. That's not a problem mm-hmm. because they can listen to something and say, I don't know what this is. Uh, and then maybe, maybe they are interested to find out about it. Maybe they're not, but the, the worry is 
when they think they understand what the shortcut is. Okay. And, and they don't. So if you if you think uh, and you're in uh, first century Rome and you hear the gospel is the grace of God that forgives sin and you think that means I can do whatever I want to now and, and everything's okay, then it's not just that you don't understand what Paul is writing to you. It's that you think you understand okay. uh, what it is in a way. And that that's, you know, Jesus says that uh, to the Pharisees when he says, your problem isn't that you're blind. Your problem is that you think you can see. And, and that's, I mean, that's obviously uh, a really nefarious case uh, there, but, but it also applies to just everything. If you think uh, when you know that you don't know something, you're in a much, much better sort of, and I think what we do wrong often in terms of communication is that we, we spend a lot of time trying to avoid concepts that people know they don't know. And we don't spend enough time deconstructing things they think they do know. So an example of that would be <clears throat> hymnody. Uh, Come Thou Fount drives me crazy when people take Come Thou Fount and take uh, Ebenezer out of it. Hmm. Here I raise mine, Ebenezer. And they say, well, people don't understand what Ebenezer is. Of course they don't. Hmm. But it's that, that, that doesn't repel people from Christianity any more than uh, not knowing what Gryffindor and uh, mm. and uh, Slytherin, Slytherin yeah. mean when they're reading Harry Potter. Well, when they come into that that world, they start becoming familiarized with that with that stuff. And and when you're coming into the world of the Bible, uh, having a concept of Ebenezer and say, "What does this mean?" Yeah, and then being you know learning to become familiar with it through singing it and then discovering it. That actually is not a, that's not a barrier uh, to people. What's a barrier is when you say things like love and you don't define what love is mm. in a biblical way. Everybody understands what love is. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. they, they've, they've come to understand what love is in ways that just aren't, uh, aren't true and right. Yeah. Well, this is, <clears throat> yeah, powerful stuff. Great, great to to think and to to consider and that work for that. It's not a matter of verbal precision as such, but it's but it's understanding like the the lexicon that 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 we preachers have <clears throat> and then the hearers have, and realizing that there's there's a big overlap in English vocabulary, but yet that it should be explained or even pressed in a little bit to make sure that it's understood that when we say X, we mean X. Not Y, not Z, not or Z. Uh, well, can I can I transition more in kind of like a the a more practical thing? Um, I I'd love to hear about like your your weekly rhythm, like preparing a sermon. Sunday's coming. I, I don't know if you preach every Sunday anymore. I know that Sunday school classes not have always now. been okay. So if you were to be preaching weekly, what what would be uh, the week look like? Well, what I. Um... What I often say to people when I'm asked this is I'm almost reluctant to say that because it it sounds almost like I'm commending 
this particular way of doing things okay. when I'm not. The way that I prepare for something is entirely based upon just the way that my brain and heart and subconscious and everything else works. And for somebody else, it would be a disaster. Just sure. as if I tried to do things the way other people do them, it would be a disaster. And so you have to, you have to ask, how do I best uh, do this? But for me, what I found is I have to um, start with uh, a, uh, a real familiarity with whatever, whatever text I'm going to be preaching, which means a, a lot of time spent in that text, not in anything else, but just in that text, mm. both in terms of the small so the text um, in and of so, for instance, if I'm preaching uh, Hebrews two, um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time reading and rereading Hebrews two, and then sort of fast reading Hebrews altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, there's a lot that's going on. I'm not even at that point asking myself what does this mean. Uh, what I'm doing is just embedding myself in that text and getting excited about that text. I mean, yeah. the, the, the key is to say, what does, if I get to the point where I say, what does this mean? That's in a good place. And then let that sit for a while. So what I have to do is to sort of go about other things. So it's not, um, I'm going to sit down right now on Monday and prepare for Hebrews 2. It's that I'm interested in Hebrews too. So while I'm doing other things, I'm, I'm driving to the meeting and I'm thinking about Hebrews too, or I'm in the shower and mm -hmm. Hebrews too comes to mind. You don't even have to give it a lot of direct attention, but let it be working itself in there until I come up with the sorts of questions that I have first for Hebrews too. It, it's only then when I start to get an inkling of what questions I have and then what uh, what I think Hebrews 2 would have to say to my people, mm -hmm. whoever it is that I'm speaking to. Only then am I going to go to commentaries or, or any other sort of, of resource. And here's why. Because what a lot of people do with commentaries is they just collate it. And so what you end up with is here's what... J.C. Ryle says about Hebrews 2, and yeah. here's what D.A. Carson says, and here's what N.T. Wright says, and here's what, and it's just this, this collated uh, sort of, so I've been in some uh, preaching situations where I've thought to myself, this could have been an email, you know, you, you could have sent the links uh, to this, yeah. and it would have, uh, it, it actually isn't a word coming to me, it's a collation. So you go in, and the, what the commentary work is there to do is to help you to know: uh, Am I am I am I coming up with something that's that's wrong? Have I been misinterpreting this? And so it's almost a, it's the equivalent of what you would do when you're sitting down, you're having a conversation with people, and you're saying, "Hey, here's what I'm thinking's going on in Hebrews chapter two." What do y'all think? And here's how yeah. I think that Hebrews 2 applies. What do y'all think? So that's that's the point where it uh, where where that comes in. And then when it comes to actually writing 
uh, something out for myself. That does not happen until very, very late in the process. And that's just the way I'm wired. The Mm -hmm. adrenaline has to hit. Yeah. So there's a lot that's been going on, but it's all been going on sort of under the surface that in, in ways I can't even really see. And then when I sit down and I know here's here's when the, the preaching event is happening, now I'm able to get uh, all of that stuff down on paper. So that doesn't happen, you know, in in many cases, when I was preaching every Sunday, usually what I'm writing down in terms of notes doesn't happen until Sunday morning. Really? Uh, and, and if I tried <clears throat> to do it before that, uh, what I'm going to end up uh, doing is having to completely redo it or sometimes even confuse myself because yeah. I'm doing it too soon in the process for me. Yeah. Again, for for other people, uh, you know, I, I know people who sit down and write out their Sunday sermon the Monday before hmm. uh, or even, you know, I know people who can plan out, here's what I'm preaching six months from now. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of an outline. Well, if that's the way you're, you're built, great. But yeah, I know some people like that as well. It's, it's crazy, but yeah, they'll have, it's, it's all planned out the whole quarter. Uh, The outlines of of every sermon are there. I'm, I'm similar in that uh, Sunday morning, 4am to about, about 8.30. That's when the sermon comes together and it's kind of final, you know, it's, it's there. In a pinch, yeah. I could I could talk about it on Saturday, right. talk it through. But the way that it comes together is in those early morning hours as the sun's coming up on Sunday. There's nothing like just a bit of last minute panic too. The kind yeah, of- and, and that's not just the case with uh, with preaching. I mean, for instance, I've had uh, mm-hmm. not <laughs> not long ago, I had uh, a a magazine that came to me and said, hey, would you write an obituary for so-and-so, uh, this person, for when this person dies? Oof. It's an older yeah. uh, person. And would you write an obituary for this person? And I said, It wasn't no. Prince Philip, was it? Huh? It's not Prince it's Philip, was it? Philip. Okay. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I really can't because I, I don't know what I think until I experience the death of this person. Okay. That's going to change the whole thing. And then five minutes later, that person called. And so it was kind of surreal. Wow. I mean, he's feeling fine. What wow. are you working on? And I said, well, <laughs> not your obituary. Tell you that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, here, here's a, here's a question like that has to do with that sermon prep. And, and this is just like pure Mike Neglia curiosity. As I mentioned, I've, I've, been listening to your your Sunday school lessons and preach for a long time. And I'm always like, where does this guy get all of these like captivating opening stories? Like, where do they come from? Because it's so diverse, you know, it's like facts about frogs, uh, commentary about like the zombie films or, or this or that. It's all over the place. And I'm just like, how, where do they come from? And, and you have so much more to say to the world than just like pithy opening sermon illustrations. But yet I'm talking to you now, like, where do you get them? Is there a file? No, what, what I do is, uh, is simply think about uh, the stuff that I'm interested in and, and the stuff that I've been. So you're, you're then sort of correlating, well, how, 
how does this relate to something else? So usually, usually what I'm doing with uh, maybe an opening illustration is to uh, try to create the crisis. Um, and by by crisis, I'm, I don't mean a, a negative thing necessarily, mm-hmm. but it creates the turning point mm-hmm. to say, this actually is something that's going to be speaking to you. And the way that you uh, you do that is to put somebody into a situation imaginatively to where they're actually, uh, by imagination, experiencing something big or small to, to show them, okay, you actually are the type of person who can hear this word and who needs to hear this word. Okay. So that's usually, but no, there's not. Now, what I will do is um, I, I, I just am interested in a lot of things. I read a lot of things um, and so forth. And I'll take notes for myself Yeah. Okay. Uh, about things that I find of interest. So it used to be, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I would have these black notebooks that I would put it down. Uh, now I, I do that in Google Keep. And like so, yeah, similar <laughs> to that. Yeah. 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 Um, but now I, I do it in, I, I do keep notebooks too, but I, I normally keep things in Google Keep uh, that's mostly just so, sort of to remind me about things. So, so then when I'm uh, writing a sermon and I'm coming to Hebrews 2, for instance, I keep you know, coming back to that example. I'm going to Hebrews 2, and I'm thinking, uh, people are in captivity to fear of death. But I don't think that my people think they're in captivity to fear of death. Mm-hmm. I think they feel as though they're very confident. What I want to do is to say to them, no, you actually do know more about this than you think you do. And so I want to sort of get them into uh, a really... Uh, if you think about a really helpful um, tool is uh, the ladder of abstraction that, that's often used in terms of, of teaching writing, which is to say uh, you can go too high on the ladder of abstraction in a way that uh, that people can't understand. So you're talking about mortality. All right, that's an abstraction. Mm. It, it goes right over over people's heads. Or you can get too specific in terms of um, in terms of ladder uh, of abstraction, in a way that you know Rwandan killing fields uh, when you're talking to people in Cleveland, uh, and, and that's that's too specific that they can't understand it. But what you want to do is to have something specific enough that people are able to connect uh, with it, but universal enough uh, that, that you're actually going to be able to have something to, to connect them to. And so finding those ways, I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing hmm. uh, repeatedly uh, when he's coming in and, and saying, yeah, what do you think uh, about, uh, you know, uh, planting of seed or shepherding of sheep or, um, or, or the 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 neighbor, uh, the woman who's who's uh, petitioning the judge in the middle of the night. You know all of those those sorts of things. That's what you're trying to do. 
So what, and this is kind of the, the last question or, or teasing this out, just aware of the time. So like with this ladder, ladder of abstraction, mortality, too vague. Rwanda, yeah. too specific. Yeah. What's that, what's the sweet spot? Because I think you've got a gift of, of being able to like use these captivating, engaging stories. So like, help us out. Like what's the, what's a good middle ground? Okay. Uh, uh, Marcus Garvey uh, would talk about how his father would put him in a grave six feet down when he was a child. And uh, Marcus, in order to teach him about his mortality, which was abusive, mm. you know, abusive behavior, clearly. And Marcus Garvey is in his terror, screaming out of the grave, dad, you know, daddy, father. Okay. Uh, so what can happen is that's not an experience that probably anybody else in the room has ever lived through. Sure. So there's a sense of, ugh, who would do this Yeah, sort of a thing. But there's also a sense of everybody can connect to the terror that would happen if you're six years old and you're in a grave and you don't know where your dad is at night. Because everybody has experienced that. They haven't experienced that. Hmm. Uh, but, but if you talk about the things that they've directly experienced, usually they don't notice it. Because that just becomes part of the, that's just the background, you know, the old Aristotle fish in the water thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if they, they, that, they can say, that would be awful. Yeah. And they can sort of imaginatively connect to that. And then to come in and to show, okay, yeah. that's what I'm talking about yeah. when I'm talking now about. Now look at Hebrews chapter two. Now yeah. See, yeah, yeah, see what it says there. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And then what I'm going to do is to come in and say, it's, it's like that and it's not like that. Yeah. Uh, when, when Hebrews 2 says you're in slavery to fear of death, that fear of death usually doesn't manifest itself as a six-year-old child screaming uh, in a grave until uh, sort of the normality uh, leaves and you start to panic because the plane's going down or because, but most of your life, you're just trying to find ways to distract yourself from fear of death. And here are ways that, that people tend to do it. They do it by pursuing sexual pleasure, or they do it by trying to make a name for themselves in their jobs, or they do it through uh, money. You, you, all of the ways that you try to anesthetize yourself to fear of death, because mm -hmm. you don't want to be that six-year-old kid uh, screaming out in, in, in terror and in fear. So th that's sort of an example of how to, how to get there. Well, Dr. Moore, thank you for that haunting and horrific image to end this conversation on. Um, uh, I mean, I, it's my fault. I did ask. I said, please, please give me uh, the perfect ladder of extraction. And that is that is perfect. That is that is haunting. Um, wow. Well, uh, thanks. This has been an, an incredible uh, privilege to, to speak with you. And um, yeah, can you want to point people towards ways that they can hear even like your own teaching and preaching? I know it's not as it's more sporadic now than it used to be, but is there a a, a place or a forum where people can hear your Bible teaching? Yeah, they can go to uh, the Russell Moore podcast um, available wherever they look, listen to podcasts or they can just go to my website, russellmoore.com. Okay, is more to the point still there? 
Uh, more to the point is a newsletter that I send out every uh, Monday. Okay. But but long was your website? Did it used to be more to the point? Yeah. I think, okay. Yeah. That's that. I'm old school. I'm an old school fan. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time, and uh, I hope that this episode and all that we do of the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thank you, Doctor Moore. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow. Well, thanks again to Dr. Moore for your time. Thank you for sharing uh, your life and your learning uh, with us. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we are active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Do give us a follow. We've been doing giveaways lately. And so there's lots of reasons uh, to make sure that we are included in your social media feeds. And I also want to give another invitation. On Facebook, we have a private group facebook.com slash groups slash expositors collective. Uh, It's a a private group where we're able to talk about the most recent episodes and also people just throw up their questions uh, about preaching and even ways to handle specific texts or specific passages. Um, It's something that I think you should consider joining so we can take this conversation from a monologue that you listen to to an actual conversation that you get to participate in. And additionally, I want to invite you to our training weekend, which is taking place in September in Colorado. You could find out more details at expositorscollective.com or on any of our socials. Now, Dr. Moore spoke about the right and the wrong ways to use commentaries. Uh, We're not supposed to simply collect interesting sentences from the various books that we've consulted, but as he mentioned, we're to use them responsibly. You know what? If you're interested in that, then next week's conversation with Dr. Nijay Gupta is going to be incredibly fascinating to you. He actually wrote a commentary about commentaries. He actually wrote a book of surveying the various commentaries available for different New Testament books. And I have a conversation with him that goes kind of in depth into the right and the wrong ways to use commentaries. So I'm going to leave you first with a clip from next Tuesday's episode uh, with Dr. Gupta. And then also you're going to be invited uh, to Colorado by Pastor Eric Cartier. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. My version of that would be F.F. Bruce, who is a very well-known commentary writer in the like 1960s, 70s, 80s. I'm not saying older commentaries aren't good. I, I actually, F.F. Bruce is one of my favorite commentary writers. I still go back to his 1980s commentaries and I find huge amounts of value. But um, for example, Bruce isn't going to talk about um, racism uh, in the church in the same way we're going to talk about it today because mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he had a different experience back then. He's not going to talk about uh, some of the questions we have about technology and bioterrorism and things sure. like that. Sure. So there's all kinds of modern issues that commentaries will engage with depending on the type of commentary. Yeah. And a final thing on commentaries before we talk about inductive Bible study, but um, you, you say in here that like, we probably shouldn't use free online commentaries. Now explain yes. that to my budget. <laughs> why, why shouldn't I yeah. use uh, free online commentaries? There are a couple, couple challenges there. I mean, you should always use whatever you find helpful, but 
Um, a lot of the stuff that's in the public domain is really, really old. There's nothing wrong with things that are really old. In fact, I encourage my students to read the Church Fathers, to read the Reformers. Mm. Um, Chrysostom, Calvin is a fantastic commentary writer. Yeah. So you're saying um, if you're going to go old, go real old. Go really old. Yeah, yeah I love yeah. pre-modern commentaries. I use them constantly. Ambrosiaster and Theodore and Theodore and all that. But um, Matthew Henry, for example, um, there are all kinds of things that we have learned as scholars over the years that should give us pause about using some commentaries from the 1800s, early 1900s. It's not that you shouldn't use them, but I don't feel like a lot of pastors are trained to know um, some of those things that those older scholars don't know. For example, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we learned a lot about early Judaism, and it's taught us a lot about what's true and not true about early Judaism. Yeah, those older works don't take that into consideration, and it can be really challenging. Um, we've just discovered a lot of material, a lot of things about the world of Jesus and Paul, and the Old Testament as well. Um, the other problem is, people can put stuff online, and there's no editing, and there's no. So if someone, you know, let's say you decide I'm going to write a commentary of the Gospel of John, I'm going to put it on my blog for free. That's great. People might use it, but academics uh, commentaries go through a rigorous editing process yeah. with a committee. And the, the back end of that is you pay money for it. You're paying for us to go through a process as, as a purchaser for stuff. That's just free online. I'll tell you a funny story. My wife and I will sit in church listening to a pastor preach and they'll say something sensational about the biblical text. And my wife will look at me as if to say, is that true? <laughs> I'd say about 80% of the time, the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we always say this in seminary, we always said this, right doctrine, wrong text. They're not preaching heresy, but what they're saying is a catchy idea without evidence. This happens all the time. So you really have to be careful not to do that. Um, just because uh, it's so easy to take one kind of just idea that's out there and say, okay, I'm just going to preach on this as if this, tr this is true. Um, I could give you so many examples of that. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's about finding resources that you can really trust to, to give you good information. Hello, this is Pastor Eric Cartier from Rocky Mountain Calvary. I want to invite you to come join us for the Expositors Collective in September. We're hosting it here in Colorado Springs. It's a beautiful setting right by the mountains. But more importantly, this is a great time to be able to get equipped to teach God's Word. What I love most about the Expositors Collective is its focus on young people. For God to really raise up the next generation to communicate God's Word. We've never needed God's truth more than now. So if you're thinking about coming, consider yourself invited. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a great time.